know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, episode 165. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and today my guest is Sarah Tasneem. And today she's going to talk about forced child marriage. She's going to talk about it from an expert and and policy point of view, but she's also going to talk about it because she has lived experience. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Celia. Yes, I am so interested in this topic because we don't talk about it nearly as much as we should. And it's really sort of still under wraps, but what you say to me and what you're going to talk about in this podcast is that forced child marriage is pretty prevalent in the U.S., correct? That's correct. Um, It's one of those issues that uh, folks sometimes uh, will think about as happening internationally and not really connect the dots with having it happen here domestically, um, which it does happen because it's legal and um, it happens quite a bit. And it's just one of those underreported issues that not too many people think or know about. Yeah. So let's just go back to your experience. So can you talk to us about your early family life and and how you might have gotten involved in this, uh, what you would describe, I guess, as a religious cult, perhaps? Yeah, um, well, it starts with my parents. Um, My mom um, was actually, she was, her marriage was um, forced to my dad when she was 19 years old. And um, she is from Guyana originally. um, And then was, my dad was, a U.S. citizen, um, and she came over from Guyana, and um, they both settled in Boulder, Colorado, and that's where, you know, my early years were spent, and my mom divorced my dad when I was about five years old because um, she decided that she wanted her freedom, um, and she was pursuing her own career and didn't want to become you know, she she didn't really want to follow the religion that my dad was a part of, mm-hmm. and he had joined um, a cult, which was basically a Sufi cult. Um, There were small facets here in the United States at that time, but it was largely international and based in in Cyprus um, with with followings uh, internationally. Um, So my dad started becoming more and more involved in that when I was a young child. Um, and And, And so what did you call it? What kind of cult? It was a, a part of a Sufi. Um, it's under it. So Sufism is under Islam. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit more spiritual, like it's a little bit more based on spirituality. And they also believe that there should be, uh, a sheikh who you follow, who is the teacher. And so that's kind of where the cult comes in. Um, because, Mm -hmm. you know, people held the sheikh up to, um, almost, you know, provide like 
uh, a pathway to to like God um, in a way. And so that's kind of where Sufism and Islam depart a little bit. Okay. And is there Sufism, is it ever a a spiritual thing, a, a healthy thing, a good thing other than a cult? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have followed other Sufi groups. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, quote unquote, good groups out there um, that aren't, you know, cult based. Uh, they just believe in, in the kind of um, spirituality that goes along with Sufism. So that could be uh, meditation, chanting, and I'm sure a lot of folks have heard of the whirling dervishes. Um, and, and those are Sufis as well. Okay. And so how did you get involved in, in a cult, I guess? Well, my, so again, I was basically born into it. Um, my dad uh, joined when I was um, pretty young. I, I don't even remember how old I was, but um, I, I think he joined when I was a baby. Um, so I was raised in it and um, indoctrinated from, you know, a very early age as to what, my my role as a girl was within that group, um, which was basically to be subservient um, and, you know, to listen to not just my elders, um, but, of course, my dad and um, the sheikh and anybody else, basically, who was, a, who was an elder. And so they had very strict kind of gendered roles. Did you have to listen to basically any male or did this have to be a male in power? Yeah, I mean, we weren't really um, like we were around other males, but we were really taught to stay away from from men that they were kind of scary. And, um, you know, for example, like if we were at the community mosque or anywhere else that we were gathering, um, you know, we wouldn't look men in the face. We were told not to look at them in the face. And um, just to like, generally speaking, men were scary. That's <laughs> something that we had to be protected from. Um, but I mean, all basically all the indoctrination pointed to that we should be obedient to our elders. And if it was a man, then we should be obedient to the man as well. And so how did child marriage come into play? At what point, like, what was the age where they decided that you should be married? Well, so it varied for different people. But basically, as soon as you hit puberty, you were essentially on the market. And um, they would encourage um, people who joined the group. So there was, like, different types of followers. Uh, They would try to attract in, like, younger, you know, possibly students, but... Um, definitely targeting people that had a little bit more money. Um, So people would join and then they would tell, especially the men that like marriage is half of your faith Mm -hmm. and that they should, if possible, marry to a virgin. Mm -hmm. And so we were those virgin girls, basically. Um, So myself, along with many other girls in the group were married as young virgins and what age did you, were you forced into marriage? At 15. Okay. And how old was your husband? He was 28 years old. Okay. And what did you think of that at that time? I mean, did you get to know him? Had you met him? Were you friends with him before? No, not at all. Actually, um, 
So my childhood was was a bit complicated, but I bounced around from my my mom and my dad's house. But I was generally raised with my dad up until I was about um, ten, and then I was uh, kind of reunited with my mom from the ages of twelve to fifteen. So it was just finishing my freshman year. Uh, she was living in Colorado, and um, you know I had um, a friend at school. He was a boy, um, and she basically told my dad about it and he wanted me to go out there to California where he was living at the time. And, uh, he wanted me to visit him that summer. And so my mom agreed with the, with the agreement was that I would come back and, you know, finish school after, you know, the summer was over. So that was her expectation. Um, but that didn't happen. I I was basically, um, as soon as I got off the plane, my dad sat me down and just uh, told me that, you know, sex outside of marriage was completely against all of the rules and um, would not only damn myself to hell, but him as well. And that the Sheikh was going to pick a husband for me and I was going to get married because of, you know, what I was doing in Colorado um, was basically putting my, you know, virginity at risk. Um and so that summer, um, you know, while visiting my dad, he he introduced me to a man one morning, and I was told that I was going to marry him that same night. Hey, I wanted to break into this episode to let you know that if you're interested in getting ahead of the problem of human trafficking by engaging in prevention and changing the trajectory of the lives of at-risk youth, then listen and learn about what really works in the field of anti-trafficking prevention curricula. Follow me here. The first issue is to understand that every youth is not at the same level of risk. There are youth at higher risk than other youth. Second, for those at higher risk, education doesn't necessarily translate into lowered risk. Youth at high risk will be educated and will remain at high risk because there are other factors keeping them at high risk. Third, Understand that sex traffickers don't commonly snatch youth off the street and chain their wrists and ankles. They manipulate them and chain their minds and hearts in what we call trauma bonding. If that's true, then we need to train youth to see the manipulation coming, assess it for what it is, and do something preemptively about it. My Best Life Human Trafficking Prevention Curriculum for At-Risk Girls uses the safer method to teach girls how to see risky situations and risky people, assess the situation, find suitable and safe solutions, evaluate those solutions, and respond. We talk about support and relationships and boundaries, and we reduce the risk factors that increase the opportunities for someone to remain vulnerable and to be trafficked. If you're interested in lowering risk and perhaps changing the trajectory of someone's life for the better, check out my free webinar on the best life curriculum at celiawilliamson.com. Learn how to become a trained best life facilitator today. And now on with the podcast. Oh, wow. So what did your mother have to say about this? She did not know. And I was basically told, you know, the, my whole life, basically, the narrative around my mom was that, you know, she was crazy. She's only going to cause problems. She's not, uh, she doesn't follow the religion. She's, you know, so I was told 
not to have any contact with her. And I was still a kid. I mean, I was with my, uh, my mom and I'm sorry, not my mom, but my dad and his family. And so I didn't really have access, um, to getting in touch with her. And so she didn't know that this was happening actually. Um, uh, because if she had known, she would have called the cops for sure. Did you in fact get married that night? Yeah, we were spiritually married in what's called a nikah. And basically this was like the, the leader of my dad's group um, who had flown in from Cyprus um, was there for a conference, a religious conference. And it was a big honor for him to have his daughter married by you know, this international leader. And so he, I think that was probably, you know, part of the rush, but also part of the rush was that he just wanted to control who I was and my sexuality and, you know, what my future was going to look like. Um, So I was married in a spiritual ceremony that night and basically handed over to this 28-year-old stranger who I never met until that morning. And I was left in his care. And what happened that night, the next morning, did you go to live then at this person's home? Well, he lived out of the country. So basically I was, you know, what happens on a wedding night is that uh, the marriage gets consummated. So I was exposed to sexual assault and rape. And I was, that was my first actual, like, sexual experience, um, you know, and after that, it was like, you know, I really just lost, um, I, I think a piece of me just got lost. I was just not the same person after that. That's a and lot of trauma. Did he end up staying in the U.S. Uh, to continue the marriage or what happened after that? Well, um, I think this group really knew how to do this. They were used to trafficking children. So... <clears throat> He took me out of the country to his home country um, where I didn't speak the language. I was pulled out of school. I didn't know anybody. Uh, He was basically the only person I knew, him and his family. Um, But I didn't know his family either. So I just was in a completely isolated situation. Um, All my reproductive rights were taken away from me. All my bodily autonomy was taken away from me. I, parts of that, trip like I don't even remember um a lot of it is kind of just blocked out um but basically I got pregnant right away and um after about six months we returned back to the Bay Area San Francisco Bay Area and um a lot of a lot of abusers who uh force their um victims to marry them will shop around different states and they'll shop around to find out which are the best counties or states to get married in. And of course, since this group already had a network, they already knew. Um, And they said, take her to Nevada, to Reno, Nevada, which was a short four hour drive from where we lived. And um, you can marry her there with a permission slip. And in the state of California, the age of eight, the age of consent of sexual consent is 18 years old. Um, So he was breaking the law. He was committing statutory rape at that time. And had my mom known, 
she would have been able to file statutory rape charges against him. However, as soon as I got legally married in Reno, Nevada, um, all of that just went out the window. I was now in a legal trap, um, which is what happens when minors enter a marriage with an adult. It's basically a legal trap. How old were you? Were you still 15 at that time that you got married legally in Las Vegas? Um, I had turned 16 um, and I was about seven, six or seven months pregnant. Um, Basically, like you could follow the timeline of my of my spiritual marriage to, you know, that day. And that's literally how many months I was pregnant. Um, And I was, you know, again, like nobody asked me, is this something that I wanted to do? Um, I think a lot of people see a pregnant girl with somebody and they just automatically assume that things are okay, but things were far from okay. Um, And to further isolate me, I felt that, you know, because I was, you know, wearing a hijab, which was basically a scarf, um, people would tend to look the other way and not recognize me as a human being um, who's possibly at risk of, you know, this, this horrible, horrible trauma. And so how did you manage to get away, get out of that situation? Um, It took a really, really long time. It was, it was a process um, because I had to mentally um, be able to break free before I was physically able to break free. So um, it took a long time, but after I had my daughter, um, we were legally married. And so I was allowed to talk to my mom again. Um, By that time, there was not anything legally that she could do, but I was still in contact with her. And so she would encourage me um, to go back to school, which I started I started going back to school um, and I got my GED. And fr- from there, I started working on, um, you know, what I was going to do next. And I, I really, when I started going back to school, I think that's the first time I really stood up to my ex-husband and to the group because they did not want me to go to school. Um, they said that my place was at home taking care of my husband and my daughter and I shouldn't want to go to school because, you know, he was supposed to provide for me, which he wasn't doing uh, very well because he would be off and on working a lot and we would be bouncing around from house to house. Um, And that was the first time I just said, you know what, I'm still going to go to school. I don't care what you say. And I started, it took seven years to get out of this marriage and two children. Um, and honestly, it was nearly impossible and it almost costed my life. So it there's once you enter into a marriage as a minor, minors can't enter into other contracts legally. So if I had tried to get a divorce, I wouldn't have been able to hire an attorney. What attorney is going to enter into a contract with a minor? Yes. Even if you're an emancipated minor, which a lot of folks argue that that's the case here in California, they still won't enter into a contract with you. The reality is, is that you can't rent um, an apartment. You can't um, 
you know, in my case, I couldn't even drive. I didn't learn how to drive until I was 23. Um, I was just completely dependent on my abusers. And there was no way for me to escape that situation um, until I got old enough um, to be able to start working. And um, my thought was that if I could become at least financially independent, then I could leave without being homeless with my children. And that was basically my goal. Well, and how did you get mentally prepared? You know, you're surrounded by people that are telling you over and over and over. I mean, you don't have a support network that is helping you see your situation for what it is. How did you become mentally prepared? Well, I think as soon as I started going back to school, um, some of my classmates would start asking me about like my home life. And I would tell them, you know, I I have kids and, you know, my whole situation, they would be shocked, literally jaws on the floor. Like, how are you so young and you have kids and like, what's going on? And that just started me questioning, like, what is really going on? I didn't realize that this was abuse. I mean, I still struggle with you with this idea. It's still really hard. Um, but I was told my whole life that like, this is what I was supposed to do. And it was like, it was very normal in the, in our group to see this. So it, it was hard for me to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. But once I started questioning, um, I think things started slowly coming into focus. Um, and it took a really long time. Um, and I still struggle with it sometimes. And so you went back to school and you started to get braver and a little more courageous and a little more aware. And you said, I'm going to get, I'm going to go back to school anyway, even though the group doesn't want me to. Then what was your next step toward leaving? Well, that group actually, um, the real core group, they ended up moving to Michigan uh, right before the Y2K because they thought the world was going to end. And we actually, my ex-husband and I stayed in the Bay Area because I told him I wasn't willing to go live in Michigan on a farm in a tent. <laughs> That's what he wanted me to do. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> so give us some dates about, you said Y2K. So what, around what year was this happening? That was, um, that was right before 2000. And that was 1999. And then 2000 hit and the world surprisingly didn't end. And we were in California, the group was further away physically. And so I had started building my own support network with my friends at school and also my other um, other people within the group that I knew had, st they had started leaving their abusive marriages as well. And so we kind of like connected and supported each other. And then I also had reconnected with my mom and I tried a lot. I tried a lot of times to leave before I actually did leave. And I tried to stay with my mom and, um, my ex abuser would come and like, you know, convince me to come back home. Um, it took multiple times for me to leave. But when I did, I I just made a decision. I was done and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, did, were you able to take your children with you? Well, at first he tried to keep them. Um, he had taken them out of the country, 
again, like on a summer visit, same thing almost with my dad. And um, he said he wasn't going to return them. And I said, no way am I going to let this happen. I'm not going to let my kids go through what I went through. And I borrowed some money. I got on a plane and I I demanded that they return my children back. And, and they did. Um, mm-hmm. And then at that point, it was like 2003 when I separated. I didn't get my divorce finalized until 2007. It took me a really long time to get a divorce. Um, and he made it extremely difficult. Um, when he returned back to the United States, he physically assaulted me, um, and tried to push me out of a moving vehicle. Um, it was, that was the time when I was really afraid for my life. Um, I just really isolated myself. I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. I just, it was just me and my kids against the world, basically. Um, and is he, is he living in the U.S.? today or is he back in his country? No, he had a green card at that time, but I guess because of our divorce, it would have been hard for him to keep his green card. So he went back to his country. Um, And I know you don't want to mention uh, the actual religious sect or cult or name, um, but uh, are they still active? They're still active. They're still, um, I, I don't know about how much is going on right now, um, within the group, but I do know that a lot of other survivors have come forward to me. And, um, because of that, um, my friend, um, Genevieve, who has a nonprofit called Resiliency Foundation, uh, we started a support group, uh, for these folks who have come forward and, um, we're trying to, to help other people so that they have a little bit more support than, than what I did and um, what other, some of the other survivors had no support when they were leaving. So. Yeah. Not only that, I mean, you've been getting very politically active. And so what, what are some of the things that you're doing um, across States? Like I know you're working on legislation. So what is that about? Yeah, so um, there is a movement right now to end child marriage in the United States because child marriage is actually legal in 43 states. When I first started working on my advocacy, all 50 states allowed child marriage to happen. And most people didn't really realize that because basically states set the age to 18. However, there's exceptions written into those rules. Um, For example, here in California, there's no minimum age to get married with parental consent and judicial review. And so what that creates is, again, like a legal trap to where if a minor enters into a marriage, there's no way for them to escape that marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is true even of 17-year-olds. And so a lot of folks don't recognize that this is an actual issue and that girls are actually being trafficked, like many of the girls that I grew up with and myself. Um, And so this is a huge issue. Um, There was a study done by Unchained at Last, and they found that between 2000 and 2018, actually more than 300,000 minors were married during that period, and 60,000 of those uh, were in a state where that would have been a sex crime. So that's, that's my story. I was also, you know, this would have been a sex crime had I not been legally married. Wow. And so 
what are the across seven states you've been able to pass these laws and what do the laws look like? What do they entail? Yeah, so I um, so this is a huge lift and it takes a lot of folks working on the ground in each of these states. So I only play a small role, but basically my role is to show up for bills that have been proposed, for legislation that has been proposed, show up at those hearings, at Senate hearings, at um, judicial hearings, um, and share my, my personal testimony with legislators so that they can understand the severe harms that child marriage is causing. Um, and actually, child marriage is considered a human rights abuse by the United Nation. Forced marriage is considered a crime by our own Department of State. But yet there are all these loopholes in the laws around the country. So seven states have officially ended child marriage. And what that looks like is basically a blanket ban on marriage before the age of 18 with no absolutely no exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, so our hashtag is 18 no exceptions because at the age of 18, you don't automatically just wake up and you're, you know, you're a full fledged adult. No, we know that, you know. It takes a little bit longer to become an adult. However, you are considered under the law an adult. Mm -hmm. So that means that you can legally end your marriage. And so that's what, what we call the age of majority. And that's what we're fighting for. Um, you know, no marriage under the age of 18, absolutely no exceptions, um, because that's really the only way to protect minors from being forced into a marriage with an adult. That's amazing. Can you name uh, all seven states that you have? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, New York, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. Okay, so, so whoever's listening, if you did not hear your state, <laughs> that's because there is no law passed. Now, is, is there a name for this law? So if people wanted to look it up, is there a specific name that people are using? Yeah, if you look up end child marriage in the United States, you're going to come across quite a bit of information. So I would encourage you to visit um, the nonprofit organizations who are working on this issue. Um, um, Tahere Justice Center, Unchained at Last, um, here in California, Global Hope 365 is working really hard on the ground to end child marriage. Um, again, I mentioned my friend. Genevieve and I work very closely, the Resiliency Foundation, and I myself am just an advocate. Um, so I show up and I partner um, with other organizations um, to share my story publicly and also to testify in front of um, different legislative bodies. But also I, I work as a mentor um, to other folks who are either they've, they're in the process of leaving their marriage or um, you know, they may have left and they just need some extra emotional support, but I'm basically a peer support mentor. So that's awesome. So not not just an advocate, but an amazing critical piece of the puzzle. So I, I didn't forget that you said, you know, you were pregnant, you're walking, you had your hijab on and people just kind of look the other way or they they make assumptions about the pregnancy. You're with the man, you're pregnant. They say, oh, that's that's lovely. That's nice. And they assume it's it's fine. Or you're wearing the hijab and maybe people feel what? Why don't people talk to you? 
I think people think, oh, they're just, you know, this, it's just them. Those people do that kind of thing. You know, they, uh, they, maybe they marry young or they do this kind of thing. Like, I think the worst example of that was when I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, and I was still, I think, 16 at the time I had gone to visit the doctor and the doctor actually made me feel really bad about my pregnancy. And had she asked me if I was okay, or had she just simply talked to me as if I was a person, I might have said something to her that indicated that there was, this was not consensual. Okay. What did she say instead? Do you remember? Um, I just remember her making me feel extremely bad about being there at all. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't exactly remember what she said, but just some very snide remarks. um, Like you were too young or something like that? or Yeah, and about my culture. Uh, I mean, I got a lot of hatred when I was wearing the hijab because people automatically assume that you're, you know, somebody who you may not be, Um, you know, again, I was born here in the United States, but I don't think that I should have to justify that um, by how I look. Absolutely. Um, And also, you know, just because you're wearing a scarf or you're from a different religion doesn't mean that you shouldn't have basic human rights. Absolutely. So people assumed that, oh, that must be what those people do. And so they must be happy with what, and that's one of the myths that we might have to dispel from our brains that we still need to check in like we would with anybody else that we see that doesn't seem to be happy or something. We get that feeling in our stomach, maybe something is not right here. And maybe we pass it off as, oh, that's their religion. That's their culture. We should not be, uh, we should not concern ourselves or be judgmental about their culture or their religion or whatever, but sometimes there might be the potential for abuse or exploitation. Absolutely. And also, you know, just to point out that it doesn't only happen because of religion. And I think when sometimes when people hear about this issue, they think, oh, it only happens in like immigrant communities or, you know, in certain religious communities. And that's couldn't be further from the truth. Um, A lot of the survivors I meet it's because there was other abuse happening within their home and this was a way for them to for for their abusers to cover up the abuse so that could be from any background and um you know the the data shows that that's true it does not happen only because of religion um yes religion was a factor in my particular story um and probably many others but that's not the only cause of this. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, and I'm going to ask you this question and you, you may not, I mean, you're welcome not to know the answer, but what's your suspicion about why there are so many loopholes across the U S do you think that people just haven't connected the dots or do you think there's something more sinister going on in terms of the gaps? I think it's both. Um, I think that it's an issue that, you know, historically has has happened since the inception of the United States. These are laws that were brought over um, from common law, basically. And they're a holdover from that time where women were treated as property. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, you know, women have become more empowered throughout, you know, time, um, which, you know, 
we can probably have a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, yes, there is something more sinister going on and that this is an easy way to, to continue to, um, you know, treat women as, you know, as less than, uh, because often this, this abuse affects 86% of 86% of minors are actually girls marrying adult men. So I want to make sure that like your listeners uh, understand who this population is. Minors who enter into marry, who who marry as as children are basically girls marrying adult men. That um, that's the majority of 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 minors who are getting married. It's not a Romeo and Juliet situation. It's generally speaking, a girl marrying an adult man. And that and that should be checked out. That should be checked into. That should be, we should make sure that whatever is happening there, just because of the the history of women in this country, that we that's already suspect. Mm-hmm. We should be making sure judges and and there should be laws in place to make sure that what people are getting into is something that they freely choose to get into. And, you know, of course, how do you know what you freely choose to get into when you're young? Um, so that should automatically be suspect. Well, Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation. And, you know, I want to end by really asking you, what do you think that us as anti-trafficking advocates, what advice would you give us? What do we need to know? What's the takeaway? And we, we've taken away a lot of good information but I just want to give you an opportunity to share with us what you think that we should be doing or we should be knowing. I think that uh, folks should know that child marriage is, it, it um, ticks a lot of the same boxes um, that human trafficking does. Um, oftentimes it's to cover up abuse. Oftentimes it's a forced relationship. Oftentimes there is money exchanged and more often than not, children are being uh, moved across state lines or even out of the country and back into the country, um, as was in my case. Um, So it is a form of human trafficking. And I personally think it should just be treated that way. um, Because in my case, it clearly was, I clearly was trafficked. Um, I was taken out of the country and brought back and then, and then married after I was abused. Um, So I think in order for us to kind of move the needle on this, it needs to be recognized as an abuse, as a human trafficking violation. And, um, you know, if you're working in the field, I would definitely look into it and, and see if, if this is happening in your community, because it is happening so often that it often flies under the radar. And because it's, legal in 43 states, it flies under the radar. Um, Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And I have enjoyed our time and please continue the good fight. Please keep showing up to do your part and, and fit that puzzle piece so that these legislators can hear it from a person who's experienced it, because I think you're amazing. And how are your children today? They're great. Um, I, I raised my kids and so they have more than enough choice about what they've, what they do with their lives and, and they're happy and they're both in their twenties and 
uh, living their lives. I bet they do have power choice <laughs> voice because you surely do. Thank you so much again. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you having me on. That was Sarah Tasneem. What a wonderful, bright, intelligent, powerful, fierce advocate for other victims across the U.S. She shows up and tells her story to legislators so that they can pass laws to protect victims from forced marriage. The UN talks about it. The Department of State talks about it. 86% of minors marry adult men. And so we need to be checking that out. We need to be asking questions and we need to get involved. We need to be educated. We need to be advocates against forced marriage. Let me tell you, there are bills that have been introduced across certain states and failed. Those states are Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, North Carolina, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Remain educated. Remain an advocate against forced marriage, which is a crime, and that crime fits the elements of human trafficking. Even though Sarah was taken out of the country, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's human trafficking, but all the other elements that she talked about fits the elements of human trafficking because human trafficking doesn't require movement, remember. But she was also moved in an attempt to further take her power and to keep her vulnerable. When she was moved into another country where she didn't speak the language, she could only hang around her abuser's family. That was very purposeful to take her power to create an increased vulnerability. Not required for human trafficking, though, but critical in her story. And she made her way all the way back to achieve her freedom, but not only her freedom, the freedom that she knew that her children needed to thrive and become wonderful adults, the adults that they are today. So great gripping story, but the message is that forced marriage does occur around the world. It does occur in the U.S. And we have to be fierce advocates and we have to be looking for it and we have to be asking questions about it. Until next time, the fight continues. <laughs>